0: informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argore, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show and to our library of weekly archive shows, and it is our goal to make a difference. And uh, so I I bid you uh, hello on this Saturday, this lovely fall day, uh, talking to you from my Connecticut home. And uh, so wherever you are um, in the nation, um, it's a pleasure always to have you, whether you're new or a veteran uh, listener to this show. And uh, today we have um, a repeat guest, and I'm very glad to uh, be featuring um, uh, a very uh, skilled ch- uh, journalist and true crime author who has been coined the next and Rule. And uh, so I'll let you in on a secret, then we'll bring uh, Delilah on. We have uh, Caitlin Rother on our show today to talk about her, her, her latest story. Crime novel, and it's a it sure is a page turner, and something that I think our listeners are going to be very intrigued to hear about. Um, so, good morning, good afternoon, Delilah. How are you? Hi, Don.
1: I'm doing great, and it's great to be here again on another Saturday, and also to have Caitlin back. This is quite exciting, and I'm really
0: interested in this
1: new book that she has, then no one can have her. I think the case is just one of those cases that keeps you spinning in your seat, so to speak. And uh, so there's a lot of twists and turns to allow her to tell us about, and I think listeners will be just as excited as we are to have her.
0: Right, right. And just uh, just taking 30 seconds before we start, I just want to say as we're approaching the uh, Thanksgiving week I just want to let people know That I, I'm i very thankful I'm very thankful to have this show I'm thankful for all of my listeners For people on social media And Delilah I'm very thankful For all that you do for me So just with that said Because I don't believe We will uh, necessarily be having uh, Our show next Saturday I want people to know And uh, thank you so much for, for everyone For supporting this show It's very important Okay um, so Caitlin, um, it's such a pleasure to have you on Shouted Life again. Thank you for joining us and being part of our, our family. Well, thank you for having me back.
1: It's um it's I think it's a great opportunity to talk to people about issues that that we all care
0: about. Uh, definitely. And um, you know, in case there is someone listening who is not familiar with you, can you just give us a, a very brief um thumbnail sketch about um how you how you've gotten to this to this point in your career after all they have coined you the next and rule so we want people to know who you are well i'm very very grateful
1: to greg olson who is a much bigger true crime author than me <laughs>
0: to have called me
1: that um <laughs> this um, is my 10th book and i have been uh an investigative reporter for uh daily newspapers i did that for almost 20 years um covering mostly government and politics so looking at that point for you know flaws in our government and I got into criminal justice while I was at the newspaper in the newspaper business covering jails and prisons and mental health issues and addiction and also social services so I kind of got into the crime aspect of of coverage because that's what I like to read. (laughs) And I was also Mm -hmm. working on a novel, um, which took me eventually 17 years to get published. So my first book that I did get published was not the first book that I wrote, but that was called Poisoned Love. And it was about the Kristen Rossum case um, in San Diego. And since then I have written, this is my eighth um, true crime narrative nonfiction book. I've got one mystery crime novel, and then one New York Times bestselling memoir that I co-authored. And I also teach, and I'm a writing coach and a book doctor, so I have come a long way in just 10 books, but uh, this, one, this one was a challenge. This one was like a bear that I had to wrestle to the ground, because as you mentioned, both of you, it was a lot of twists and turns, and very complicated, and very nuanced, so
0: Wow. Well, is there? Do you have just before we get into the need, the need of it, so to speak? It, or do you have particular criteria for selecting the uh, the particular case uh, for for your next book? Is there? Is it? Is yeah. there any one element?
1: Well, it's kind of a little sort of set of bells that have to go off in my head as I'm kind of reading through the details when I first get, you know, called to a, my attention to to a case. This one actually came to me. It was a reader who lived in Prescott, Arizona, where this case took place. Uh, I also wrote another book called Dead Reckoning, where the murder victims were also from Prescott. They weren't killed in Prescott, but they had lived there for quite some time. It's a very small town, about 40,000 people in the mountains in Arizona, and it's a beautiful place. Um, anyway, this woman started emailing me because she had uh, some kind of connection to the other murder victim, and she started sending me news articles, and, you know, there it was just one thing after another. These bells went off, and some of my bells happened to be addiction, so there was love and sex addiction in this one. There was um, usually something sexual, which is obviously, the you know, Steve Demacher was A serial, like you said, serial womanizer, his wife, Carol, the victim in this case, knew of at least 14 affairs, including nannies, students, the midwife who delivered their second child. Um, So that was another issue. Then there was, um, I also look for, you know, things to look, flaws in the criminal justice system. This one had a lot of legal machinations. So there were two trials. The first one ended in a mistrial. There were a series of judges. The first one, uh, one of the judges collapsed partway through from a brain tumor. There were two sets of prosecution teams with multiple prosecutors, two sets of defense teams. Uh, it was a death penalty case originally, so it was very complicated. And because it was complicated, even though it ended up not being a death penalty case, they were the defense was still allowed to have uh, two attorneys uh, there were ethical allegations that went back and forth between attorneys and judges. There was a whole document scandal called DocuGate uh, where the defense tried to call the uh, prosecution um, off the case entirely. And you know, then there was all this stuff that happened in the investigation. And then Steve also committed some other crimes resulting in additional charges while he was awaiting trial on murder. I mean, it just goes on and on, not to mention yeah. Carol Kennedy was just a very sympathetic victim with a very sad story, an important story for me to tell.
0: Yeah, and, well, it sounds like, you know, there's many criteria there that you had that, that was very fascinating, uh, so why not jump in? And um, the title, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the title kind of uh, says it all with regard to, uh his behavior from uh, uh, other uh, sources that I could glean if uh, th- then no one can have her is this would you consider this a classic intimate partner uh homicide type of tale well
1: i i generally do not uh, state any opinion, either you know publicly or in my books, whether or not I think that the person who was convicted for the murder actually committed the crime. I basically tell the story based on, you know, what both sides argue in court and what the witnesses tell the investigators. But in this case, I think it's safe to say that Steve Demacher and Carol Kennedy had at the very heart of this story. It's a love gone wrong, and. That they both tried to make the marriage work. They were married for 25 years. She tried to get him help for his sex addiction. He apparently acknowledged that he had a problem, but he just wouldn't get treated. He continued to cheat. And you know, every there are many marriages where people cheat. I don't want to say everyone. I didn't mean to say that, but there are there are marriages where people cheat. That's not unusual. But what was so tragic in this case is that he just would not let her go when she tried to to move on and be independent. And so that's where the title comes from, essentially, you know, if I can't have her, then no one can have her, because she was murdered 35 days after their divorce was final, 35 days. And she was savagely beaten, and it was, you know, according to the prosecution, clear that it's not just some robber who wandered in and and hit her that many times and that hard with a golf club in her skull unless he you know unless he knew her and clearly had feelings for her and was angry so yeah
0: um i know that uh when i had seen some um televised um shows with regard to this and i know they don't always give the full treatment because they can't cram everything into an hour right and they're not as as, as thorough as uh um authors tend to be you know, it opens with the with the statement from um, from Carol Kennedy's mom on the phone talking, oh, no. So I'm wondering to myself and listening with all of the myriad of details, how many times did you maybe in all of your research, which must have been many months, say to yourself, oh, no, when you kind of uncovered another rock and here is something else that you didn't anticipate? Were there many, many times when you just, didn't realize where this was going to veer off to? Yeah, I I approach
1: this case just like I approach any of the other cases um, where the person who's been convicted, you know, he's still claiming today that he's innocent, that he didn't do it. So unless the killer um, admits to guilt, which has, occurred in some of the other books, such as Lost Girls with John Gardner, who was a sex offender who raped and killed two teenage girls near where I live in San Diego. Um, I I approach these cases, and even that one, I approach with an open mind, and I don't judge because that's not my place. That's the jury's um, job. I just basically go through all the research, all the evidence, all the case documents, the transcripts, what the um, investigators found, what the witnesses say when they are interviewed. And what I what I found in this case, um, which I often find in other cases, you know, they don't present everything in court. And sometimes investigators miss things, and sometimes witnesses don't tell investigators everything that they tell me. So when someone reads the book and says, oh, well, there's an error in here because it doesn't match what's in the newspaper. That doesn't mean that my book is wrong. It doesn't mean that the newspaper is wrong. It means that I found out something different or had access to resources that the newspaper didn't. And in this case, um, I was interviewing Carol's uh, good friend, Catherine, and she was telling me that that very afternoon before she was murdered, Carol was telling her that Steve had just come over to the house uh, a couple nights earlier and another... Neighbor said the same thing to the uh, investigators, but Catherine apparently never told this to investigators. That he came over and was trying to get back together with her. Now he did tell investigators that he was that they were talking about reconciling, but never he said he hadn't been to the house for six months at least. So what when I presented that information to Carol's mother in terms of the oh no, the context of it suddenly made more sense that it was more like, oh, no, not again, like, oh, no, oh, no, he showed up
0: at the house, oh, no, kind of you thing? showed up
1: again, yeah, because otherwise it's like, oh, no, and the defense was saying, well, you know, she had two dogs that, you know, had digestive problems and, you know, peeing and throwing up all over the house, and so there was a, a stain remover on a bottle of that on the carpet near where her body was found, and they were trying to say, oh, no, the dog peed again, you know, to make it seem much more innocent, but that's what happens when I get into the research is you know I can find out all kinds of new context and and I'm sure people when they read that were surprised you know
0: yeah, so you uncover uncover new details did you did you encounter a lo- i mean this may be very common uh when you're doing your research, but with regard to um people who uh, pr- pr- proportionally speaking, how many people d don't want to be interviewed, and and key people that you need to have interviewed?
1: Yeah, this, were there a lot? This case, this, this case was a tricky one because because it took so long to get to a conviction. It took five years from arrest to sentencing. There in the two trials and the and I didn't get into this, but the first uh, defense team. Actually, filed papers under seal. They were eventually unsealed so I could find out what happened. But because of some of the actions that Steve took while he was in jail, um, which we can get into if you want, but they're
0: complicated
1: right. and they want more than I want to say for this point. Um, they had to basically uh, say that they had a conflict of interest and had to withdraw. And the reasons why they had to withdraw were not even released to the public at the time. And so that ended up you know, changing the whole direction of the trial because it, had, it just stopped in the middle of the first trial and then there was a, a gap, you know, they had to get a second team and the taxpayers had to pay for all this. That's incredible. So, yeah, so, and I forgot what your <laughs> question was. Kate, <Why> <laughs> hey, what happened in the first trial they ended what? it so quickly? I'm sorry? I said, what happened in the first trial
0: that was ended
1: so quickly it wasn't what happened in the trial it was what was happening behind the scenes so steve had um steve had gotten his youngest daughter who was only 16 at the time um, to send an anonymous email from you know two miles two hours away from her house in phoenix from a cafe pointing the finger at Uh, for the murder at the guy who lived in the guest house behind Carol's house who had already committed suicide six months after Carol's murder and could not defend himself. So that became the whole defense for the second trial. But uh, there there were allegations being made that the first set of attorneys had done something unethical um, because there was also a piece of evidence, a golf club cover that had kind of gone missing during one of the searches and it turned out that Steve had given that to one of his original attorneys and put it he put it in the safe and so when the detectives came over the first time they didn't pick it up they came back a second time with a search warrant but since it didn't specifically say golf club cover stock um Steve's attorney and he got a a bar counsel um some guidance in advance too that it was okay to do this they just did not voluntarily hand it over. So when he was arrested, the they handed it over. He forgot about it. Well, Steve claims that there were, you know, there was wind in the garage that blew it off the shelf into his girlfriend's back seat
0: <laughs> through an open window. Oh come on! And I
1: found, yeah, and I found an investigator's um, report which specifically stated that the girlfriend's car windows were closed. So, you know who knows but
0: um yeah the point
1: is that 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 the defense attorney was being accused of unethical behavior by um holding on to that golf club cover sock and then there was this email that showed up and then he was accused of knowing about the email and how it how it had originated from Steve and he said no 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 that wasn't true but he was having to defend himself and he said well it just became too difficult to defend Steve when he's busy defending himself. So he, they had to withdraw. And this was all secret uh, at the time. No, nobody knew very about it very until convoluted. much later.
0: Yeah, yeah, very, yeah but, but, but
1: But you know, again, things that that Steve caused. You know, right?
0: Um, perhaps it, just to give the listeners a reference, if they have uh, no former reference, um, and and we also do like to talk about the victims, but. Give a, a brief thumbnail sketch on who each person uh, was and you know what they were like as a person without you know having to go into vast detail, and then maybe we can uh, just tell them the the events of of that evening, and then we can maybe go more into some of the twists and turns of of the trials. Does that sound Okay, good? sure. Okay, okay. Talk um, about Carol tomorrow. Kennedy. You want to start with her. Yeah.
1: Okay. She was um, one of the, if not the most, I I don't want to say the most, one of the most sympathetic victims that I have written about. And that was another thing that drew me to this case. We went through that whole laundry list. But uh, when I first saw her picture in the paper, I just thought, wow, she has a, such a, seems like such a gentle person. You could see it in her eyes. She was a therapist and she worked With domestic violence victims, so that wasn't one of the ironies of this whole case. Is that throughout her whole life, she was 53 when she was murdered. She had been working with domestic violence victims and counseling them, and even up to her up to her death, she was still working for a a woman's um, place. It's called Pia's Place, and these were women who had drug abuse problems, um, alcohol. and and other problems which got them into these situations, including domestic violence and and sex addiction. Um, And so here she was counseling people who were going through situations, and yet she was stuck in one for so many years and couldn't get out, you know, stuck in this cycle herself. So that was one of the ironies of this. She was also, you know, a mother of two. Uh, She had been a teacher, a professor at Prescott College, where Steve also had worked. She taught yoga psychology and dream work. So she was also a very spiritual person, and she mixed psychology with spirituality, and she was also an artist. She did monolith printing and was pretty prolific, apparently, over the the last probably, you know, five or ten years of her life. And the whole relationship with Steve and all the back and forth and the struggles of trying to get her independence emotionally and financially, that was a huge issue between them as well. It showed up in her art, so there's uh there are many, many of her pieces that were in a gallery where she worked. um There are still some left actually, and one of the people who read my book was so moved she actually called up the gallery and bought one of her pieces so oh. that that'll give you kind of a flavor for her. but she was like a bright light in the room, you know, really, no one really disliked her apparently and she just seems like a lovely woman to me. Uh, I wish I had got to meet her.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, what about um what about Steve? I mean, is he uh, uh, for the purposes of the audience, is he a stark contrast or I believe they from knowing some of the back, there there were some commonalities but often opposite to or, you know, I don't know what you you would say in terms of them getting together, you know. Um Right. What, what would you like to tell us about him? <laughs> if you well, had to describe I, him in 50 words. <laughs> well, what oh, I always try to do in these
1: cases is, you know, no person who's convicted of a crime is all bad, and no victim is all good. And these people are human people. They're flawed, just like all of us, and they they're three-dimensional. So I always go into these cases, and I want to – I want to show you all all sides of these people. So I specifically asked Carol's closest friends who had known Carol and Stacey, and, you know, one of them I interviewed and, and her mom, you know, from the very beginning of the relationship, what what drew her to him? Because clearly he had some talents or he wouldn't have been able to get all these women
0: to be with him.
1: And, you know, we haven't even gone into this, but he he apparently was a very charismatic and, dynamic guy for his whole life, and, and Carol was always central, but he always seemed to have at least one woman on the side, one of whom he had a relationship with for seven years, this woman who worked for him. Um, he went from academics into finance and became an investment broker, and so his the woman who started as his assistant and later became more of an associate and, and partner, um, he he also they fell in love, they were having a relationship um personal and professional, and she at the same time that he was splitting with Carol, he was also splitting with her, so there are some people who feel that you know he was going to lose both of these women um but and then he kind of just split and lost it, and that's kind of one of the theories that one of his former friends told me, so he was very athletic very good looking very very smart, intelligent, and very manipulative. And as he grew older, apparently initially when he was working as a professor at Prescott College, um, he was promoted and he was pretty young and, and he told people that he was probably one of the youngest deans in the nation. So he got a reputation though for um manipulating people and getting power hungry and so he was being corrupted by the power and then when he went into finance he shifted, um, decided to start making money, he became corrupted by the money and so he lost his friends with uh from the college because of his personality was changing apparently and, and money and materialism just became much more important he was on these uh dating websites multiple dating websites seeing multiple women all of whom apparently thought that they were having monogamous relationships with him he was flying around spending money on on very expensive resort hotels buying himself all kinds of clothes buying his daughters all kinds of things taking his brothers and family on you know vacations and you know so he seemed very generous but he also was more than a million dollars in debt. And then at the same time, blaming Carol, who only made about $24,000 a year for causing him to, to be in debt, which just, you know, once you looked at all the bank accounts, it was clear that was not happening. So he was mm-hmm. a complicated guy. Um, uh, it, but it, he, it, it
0: definitely sounds it.
1: But he's, of he's I the, think he's, he I'm did so bad. Bad. I was just gonna say, I I think he did really love Carol, but it was like a it seemed like a control thing, you know. He just had always had her um, in his back pocket, and and then she finally just said, "No, I'm not doing this anymore." And I think that was a real problem for him.
0: Yeah, um, of of the various stories there are out there. I mean, we're, we're talking about control and power and um, you know money, love. I mean is there any one particular theory that jumps out to you that seems to make the most sense in terms of what, what was the, you know, causality of this or was it a combination of all these forces? Well, what the prosecution
1: said and was able to prove in court was primarily a financial motive. Um, They said, yes, it is a domestic violence case because um, she did tell friends that she was in fear for her life uh, for her safety, I don't know if she said for her life, but she did say for her safety. There were uh, multiple people that the the investigators interviewed, and I was not in the trial, and I don't know for sure how much of this got into court. But I read, you know, th- over a thousand pages, maybe you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages, well over a thousand of reports, and there were many friends who, including her friend Catherine, who I interviewed myself who uh Carol told that she was worried that Steve was like coming into her house, breaking into her house, getting in through an open window, coming in somehow. And in fact, you know, she was there at least one of those times, two of those times, where he one time he showed up with Thai food in the living room, like out of nowhere. Which is just kind of creepy. It's almost um stalkerish, you know. And then right. another time, uh there was a, an email that the prosecution uh was going to present in court and, and tried, but once they realized that the defense had completely missed it, it could have could have lost them the case on appeal for inadequate counsel, but there was an email that even the judge said, wow, this is dynamite bombshell. It, it kind of described a scene that sounded just like what could have happened the night of the murder, and the judge even said that in court, and so they decided to withdraw it, but again, it's in my book because it was part of the, you know, part of the evidence. And it, is, it, that it, a, right. is that an
0: email different than the one you're referring to? Yes, it's to a different email. Um, yeah, it's a different one than the one that was portrayed yes. of that whole scenario that he wrote when he was in prison. And yeah, because uh, the
1: other one, one okay. the other scenario, didn't have anything to do with him. He was trying to blame it on the the guy in the guest house who, right, um, this anonymous email where he blamed some prescription drug ring from Phoenix came in and killed Carol. <laughs> Looking for the other guy, um, but the email I'm referring to describes a scene where Steve bursts into the house. Carol's on the phone, grabs the phone out of out of her hand, and gets physical. Which, you know, is the theory of what what happened uh, the night of the murder. The prosecution's theory. So,
0: wow. Well, um, there, there are so many so many different aspects aspects of this that um, that we could. The fact that, um, just sort of like an, a, an overview statement, there seems to be very little, or, or I know that you had mentioned in, in one interview that there was no DNA, and that's troublesome, or his DNA. Yeah. And that yes. this is basically was this basically a circumstantial case? Well, when you you know this the thing with uh, the Casey
1: Anthony trial in Florida, the the jury said there was no physical evidence, only circumstantial. Therefore, we're going to let her go. You know, really, oh, in court, when you have a good prosecutor, it shouldn't matter because they really should be weighed the same. I mean, theoretically, they're not really any different. And there was a ton of circumstantial evidence that the prosecution presented. But this is something that has haunted me. How come there is no none of Steve's DNA? Well, let's put it this way: How come the investigators didn't find any? of Steve's DNA in the house and why didn't they find any of Carol's DNA um on Steve's uh, mm-hmm. clothing or in the washing machine or anywhere in her condo in his condo or in his car and the theory is that some you know one of the theories is that he was wearing some sort of maybe a hazmat kind of a suit or something where he could zip himself up you know like they do um, with the little booties mm-hmm. or who knows, you know, and then throw them away somehow. But um but yeah, Caitlin, they, no, can, do you think, wouldn't you think that even even though they were separated, he visited that home, right? And why right. wouldn't there yeah, be that's what's any so, his well, DNA there? That's weird. So that raises the question, though, how maybe the, did the investigators just miss it? I mean, I don't know. Because let me just tell you a quick other story. The, another thing about this case that made me um just going to go wow. The medical examiner um said that um you know she was probably killed with the golf club that was the weapon that he thought was most likely and that was backed up uh, by a, another forensic examiner privately and then um he, you know, he did these autopsies and he, you know, described all the blows and the shattered skull and all that. And then he drove the um, drove her body in the back of his pickup truck, tied down with some ropes, I guess. You know, in the middle of July, in in Arizona, where you know it's Arizona. incredibly hot, right? <laughs> Which is not the most professional thing to do. And they found some mysterious male DNA under heated some mysterious male DNA under Carol's fingernails and it wasn't Steve. So for a year and a half the defense and the prosecution are scouring the country looking for somebody else who it could have been, right? Because Carol was doing online dating as well. The guy in the guest house was doing online dating. He had friends who had helped him move in. There were many people, you know, who it could have been and they spent all this money getting DNA samples from all these people. A year and a half goes by Finally, come to find out, guess what? The DNA belongs to the guy who had the autopsy right before Carol. So my point uh, is, just because they didn't find it doesn't mean it wasn't there. <laughs> you know uh, what I mean? Or it wasn't yeah, identified it, properly, It just makes right? you
0: wonder, yeah, and I don't know how often that happens when they're doing autopsies, but I certainly know that, that it, it does happen. I don't know how common it is, but... You know just another you know layer layer in this onion, so to speak, you know right do what like, yeah, would you like to uh tell us about um one of the one of the um uh, characters or one of the, the uh neighbor in the guest house? I know that there, yeah. that he was uh suspected, and can you tell us maybe some without giving your whole story away, but maybe something that we don't we don't know? that might shed light and people say, hey, I want to buy this book. <laughs> sure. I mean, that was one of the
1: one of the things that also drew me. This was very curious to me um, from the outset. When I Just from what I read in the the newspaper, I read every single article that was written in the local oh. paper. Oops, I just hit the horn. <laughs> um, I read every single article that was written in the local paper in Prescott on this case, all five years' worth. And so I read a little bit about this guy, Jim Knapp, um And he committed suicide six months after Carol uh, had been murdered. He was devastated by her murder. Uh, That's what he told his friends. I interviewed um, a couple of his friends, and I also read all these investigative reports, um, the witness interviews about these interviews that the investigators did with his brother and with his close friends. And I've got a picture of him basically as this, this guy who um, really loved Carol, and they were, you know, living on the same property, but, in, you know, she was in the main house, he was in the guest house. They had known each other for years. Their kids had gone to school together at one point, and they were both going through these divorces, so they were consoling each other at night, you know, drinking wine, telling stories, and um, and I guess, you know, he apparently had some feelings for her. and But it wasn't came.
0: reciprocal, uh, Caitlin?
1: No, he. there was nothing romantic going on. Um, so, you know, yes, he cared about her. We don't really know, you know, how he felt entirely, but we do know he was devastated. He did make that clear to people. He was also telling people that he thought he was dying of cancer. And so, and I know he told Carol that he was very upset about this. He was getting tested. And it turned out he did have melanoma, um, some, some spots on his face removed surgically because I have his medical records. They were entered into evidence. Um, but he was basically telling people after Carol was murdered that he needed money because he had cancer and didn't have any money. And he didn't have any money because I saw his bank accounts too. So he's a troubled guy. He was a drug addict. He had a long history of being in recovery, and he was, you know, back on the prescription drugs. He apparently had uh, pain, and, you know, his records showed that he did have surgeries and some um some physical problems that did cause pain. So, you know, sometimes people get addicted to these things for real medical reasons, and sometimes they're addicts, and I think he was probably a little of both. So he's a very troubled guy, complicated guy, and he had um, gone and um, was babysitting, essentially, spending time with his younger son while his older son was at hockey practice with his mother, the kid's mother, um jim knapp's ex wife and he called his voicemail uh at seven fifty eight p m Carol um and her mom were talking, and the line went dead at seven fifty nine p m so a minute apart now Jim had told investigators that he was at his ex wife's house so and that was quite some ways away you know at the time that Carol was murdered so when they did the cell phone investigation and they the prosecution found that the signal of his cell phone pinged off a particular tower and it was not the tower that that it pinged off when he actually came to the house the police were there after you know carol had been body carol's body had been found he was in the driveway and tried to call carol's cell phone and she obviously didn't answer it pinged off a different cell phone so the, the prosecution said, well, he wasn't there. He has an alibi. It's clear that he was some, he was where he said he was. So the defense, however, um, in the second trial, he became the guy who was, was more likely to have had reason to have killed Carol than Steve. So he became pretty much the focus of the defense in the second trial. Um, and what was curious to me was that he killed himself in a in another condo he had been evicted essentially from the house by Steve's family he had to go because they wanted to sell it and he shot himself in this condo but it he it's it seems that he's the one who staged his own scene in that uh condo to make it look like something more nefarious happened which confused the whole situation because there were bullets in other parts of the condo in other rooms it was The bullets had gone through the glass, but he was in the closet in the bedroom. The gun was next to him. He had shot through, um, there was a chair on top of the bed. <laughs> he had shot through the chair, through the wall, and the bullet had landed into a bed in the next room. So it was very strange. The scene so he staged was a, a crime
0: scene to try to... to kind of yeah. It was pretty bizarre. And so, you know, his friend said,
1: well, he is kind of a strange guy, and he has strange sense of humor, and he also probably was trying to make it look like something else happened because he didn't want his two young sons to know that he had committed suicide, and if there was any kind of insurance, maybe he was concerned that they wouldn't get the insurance money if it was a suicide. So there were a lot of theories going around, and the defense basically said, well, the, the crime scene at Carol's house was also staged, which we didn't really get into, but there was a ladder next to her body, and there was a bookcase that was tumbled over. And when the police came in initially, they thought that she maybe had fallen off the ladder and that this was an accident, but then they realized that the ladder was facing the wrong way. And it not only was facing the wrong way, it had no blood on it. So, and based on the blood spatter pattern, it was clear to them within, you know, a few minutes that somebody who had killed Carol had staged that room and so the defense said, well, okay, well, you see a parallel here. There's a weird staging in that room, and there was also a weird staging in the condo where Jim's body was found. So they tried to make it seem like, you know, Jim had done
0: Jim had both, done both of
1: staging. Right. So that was pretty yeah. curious to me. And, hmm. um, you know, my husband, my late husband, was an also an alcoholic who committed suicide. So I have a lot of personal insight into these situations and my my assessment is that Jim Knapp killed himself. And I I don't see that he had any real motive to kill Carol. I didn't see anything in in any of this. And uh, the defense you, said that he was angry at her because she was supposed to have invested in some kind of coffee franchise business and then said she wouldn't. So that's what the defense said his motive was that he was
0: angry at Do about you that. think Knowing, knowing with your background um, in, with suicide, unfortunately, that perhaps it was just a matter of he really loved her and he was devastated and depressed and didn't want to go on. I, I mean, well, that, is that, that what was part would of it. That
1: was that was part of it, but I don't think that was all of it. I think he was deep in his uh, addiction. I think he was really, um, really, honestly concerned that he was going to die of cancer because his mother had died of melanoma. Melanoma spreads pretty quickly. He'd already had some melanoma on his face removed. Uh, I guess he was going to go in and have some other spots checked. So he, I think he was probably genuinely scared. You know, when people commit suicide, they aren't thinking rationally. They're not in a rational state of mind anyway. And so, um, you know, people want to um, attach blame and, a, you know, an evaluation for people who, you know, certain emotions and certain feelings when, you know, they're not capable of that in that state of mind or they wouldn't be killing themselves, you know.
0: Yeah. Wow. And I definitely it...
1: know that from
0: personal experience. So,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Well, I'm sure you presented it, you know, in, in a way that, you know, would would make sense and it certainly does the way you are explaining that now. Um Getting back a little bit to, to Carol and knowing that she was a um a therapist and um treated domestic violence um victims, do you do you have a sense that um why was it that she didn't have insight into her own situation or was she just in denial? I think basically
1: that she thought She and Steve, when they met, they both said to each other, you know, you're my soulmate. And I truly believe they both felt that way. I think Carol felt it maybe more than he did because he wouldn't stop cheating. And, you know, do you cheat on your soulmate? I don't know. Um, Anyway, but she loved him. She was a therapist. She thought she could help him. She thought she could get him help. She was hoping he would get cured. And I know from being in a codependent relationship with an alcoholic, that's what you're hoping for. I got out, you know, much sooner. I separated from my husband and I'm demanded that he get, you know, go to rehab and get therapy. And and I don't think she she was really capable of doing that. And then when she, fought, but see, this is what the sad thing is. She did see it finally. She did get out. She did move on. She did find herself a new boyfriend. In fact, she was, Um, She had plane tickets. She was getting ready to go to Maine to go stay with this guy who she had been seeing for, um, you know, the past few months. And, you know, he was pretty devastated just because he had thought that they were going to be together forever. And, you know, Steve, Steve was still trying to get her back. So she was confused. She was upset. Friends said they saw her in those last days. She looked terrible. She looked tired. She looked worn out. Uh, she, you know, was talking to her boyfriend on the phone. She started crying. Uh, she said, "Well, I don't know why I'm crying. Maybe it's because my daughter, you know, just left this weekend for South Africa, and I'm upset she's gone." But I think Steve was still doing a number on her, and it wasn't that she didn't recognize it. I think that was partly what was so hard for her. She said in an email to some friends right during the divorce, at the very end of the divorce when they were coming to a final agreement, that she had been in this self torturous relationship so she did recognize it I think and she was able to finally get the strength to get out of it and she did say no to Steve but she did end up going to coffee with him that very last weekend right before she was murdered while he was still working on it
0: he must have worn her down and they're very skillful at doing those things it's it's so sad and you think these women are very educated intelligent people you know um, I'm wondering, can you give us a little bit of um, a, a background with regard to to, to the families? I um, my heart went out to her mom. I mean, she's like the same age as my mom, and being caught up in in, in this and um, being yeah. far away and not getting information. C- can you tell us something about you know those family members and perhaps you know his family members was very supportive. What, what went on behind the scenes?
1: Well, I wasn't
0: able to interview
1: his family members. They did not want to cooperate with this book because they believe he's innocent and they think that the only reason I was writing a book about this is because it was a murder case. They don't think he committed the murder. Therefore, they didn't think they needed to talk to me, which I think was it's not a great typical. decision. Yeah. yeah. And so, I, you know, I tried to get their side of the story into the book. Um, and all what I ended up getting was... Um, Steve's mother made a victim, well that's not a victim impact, she made a statement at his sentencing where she tried to describe him as such a as a good guy who helped people, saved other women's lives. Um, and she was just absolutely uh, steadfast that he was innocent. And, and you know, he's the oldest of nine siblings. There were a number of his brothers and sisters who were in court who stood up and were angry. I mean, one of them turned around and pointed at the investigator and was angry. You know, this is, he's wrongly accused. This is not a fair um, conviction. This is an unfair trial. This is not the man who's my brother, blah, blah, blah. So he, some of his family members were there and they're still, you know, behind him and really hoping that this appeal is going to go through. Uh, They live in the New York area, his parents do. They're elderly, his father, the radiologist, um, and, you know, his mom uh, has multiple degrees. She was in nursing, and then she also became a minister. And they come from a, you know, pretty wealthy background, uh, very well-educated, very accomplished family. So that's Steve's family. Um, Carol's family. is is a more of a working-class family. His mom was a secretary in the government and also for a nonprofit. Uh, Carol's dad was uh, a postal worker. And, you know, good people, just good, uh, much more simple people, I think. And Carol's mother, um, there's a scene that I describe at the very end where, you know, Steve's mother is still convinced that Steve is innocent and Carol... Carol's mom is there, you know, thankful that there's been a conviction and that there was justice for her daughter, and there's just this, this scene in the courtroom, which I describe in the book, between them. Um, Carol's mother, you know, she's in Nashville, Tennessee, and she, imagine what she went through the night where her the phone line went dead and there was nothing that she could really do. She, right. you know, ended up so worried, she called the police, the wrong jurisdiction, they her to the sheriff's department, and she tried to get across the urgency. You know, my daughter, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, it took them a while to get over there. And she, she and her, uh, Carol's brother, um, who lived near near the mom, they were both waiting. They were trying to get all oh, the Steve. They were trying to get Steve to go over and check on Carol because, you know, they were far away. And, and I know Carol's mom came for um, at least part of the trial, I think, or toward the end. Anyway, she she's older though and you know she can't make the the trip and it was probably very difficult for her to go through all that. I know she really misses Carol.
0: Yeah, I could I could really relate cuz I could see some of my mom in her personality. Yeah, it's just and now with uh, another thing that was very intriguing to me was the information with regard to Steve um involving his daughters with uh um, convincing them to use the uh, the in- insurance money for his defense and right. no. all. How did uh-huh. you know? How did that occur? Or what? What? You know, how did the daughters really? Did they feel manipulated by him, or they just loved him so much and had faith in him that there were no questions asked, and they just did what he said and. You know, it, it was a horrible mistake on his part. Can you tell the audience a little bit about about that?
1: Sure. I again, I wasn't able to interview them either. They, uh, I went through mm-hmm. a couple different sources to try to reach them and, and interview them, and they did not. They were just not interested, and know, uh-huh. they were at the point where they were looking for jobs. And I've been told that the older daughter has actually changed her last name because of this. <laughs> because it was a Mm high-profile case. Yeah, because she's a lawyer now. (laughs) So anyway, um, they have never publicly said, um, well, I can say publicly what they have said, at least in court, or um, what I've been told, how they feel. I know the younger daughter definitely um, is standing behind her dad. The older daughter... um, has been kind of more measured in what she said during her uh, victim impact statement during the sentencing It was very awkward because you know this is another thing that drew me to the to the case and I wasn't able to really explore this as much as in a personal way as I wanted to because I couldn't talk to them but I can't imagine what it must have been like to have had my mother murdered and then have my father who I was so close to for all these years be accused of killing her so Not only is that difficult, but the whole dynamic of it. And then to have Steve, now this is what I do know. What I do know, I had uh, access to recorded conversations where Steve was constantly calling his daughters from jail, and so I had access to those conversations. Now, there was one particular conversation which was played in court with his older daughter who was the estate trustee and... Um, representative for the you know her mom's will and had control over what happened to that money. Steve basically said to her, "Katie, you need to take that money, seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. You need to take that money and you need to put it toward my defense." You know, and she says, "But no, but that's she says no, that's not what mom wanted. I have to be, I have to take care of my family now. My family is." Is me and my sister, and she needs to go to college like I did, and that's what you know, that's where that money needs to go. So, there was this whole family dynamic where she was ultimately persuaded to give that money to um, her grandparents, who then sent it to the defense attorneys.
0: And so, so he convinced her, yeah, wow, he
1: convinced oh. her as she to this day says she was not manipulated and coerced that she did that after system family discussions, but you can hear it in the tape that he's And how old were her. they,
0: Caitlin, when this occurred? Were they like um young
1: tweet? I, I kind of lose I kinda lose track of, of the time exactly, but I think at the time of those conversations she was either um still in college or in law school by that point. But the younger daughter okay. um was still in high school, I think, at mm-hmm. that point. Well she was in high school when her mom was murdered. So, yeah. And this went on for five years, so I can't I can't remember specifically sure. at what point. But Katie, the older daughter, you know, really it was her responsibility under the under the will and under you know, all that. Um that she was trying to take care of her sister. And the younger what sister... what a burden,
0: was, you know. Yeah to have that on and your younger, younger sister. The mm-hmm. younger
1: sister was manipulated into sending that email, you know, the fraudulent email that about the whole, you know, drug ring from Phoenix that, you know, was really responsible for killing her mom. And imagine how she felt to finally have a theory that didn't involve her dad. You know, oh, good, it wasn't my dad. It was this other group of people, you know, that it's just, it was just the whole thing was very tragic to me, the way it all played out. Yeah.
0: What um, What can you tell us about um, the uh, appeal process and what, what do you uh, foresee with that? Well, I read I read. Um, I read
1: the Appeal. Uh, it came in after I'd already turned in my manuscript, so I um, was not able to go into as much detail. I, I added just a little bit just in summary, but basically um, they're trying to get a new trial because they felt like there was just too much bias. There was, um, you know, I don't want to go too much into it because I don't remember right. all the specifics and I wasn't able to put much into the book, but... Th- this case really did have a lot of problems with it. So I would I, I would not be surprised if you got a new trial, actually. Um, but I, I still think there's a lot of evidence. I think, you know, the jury did come to a decision. Um, the first tell, jury tell our was audience leaning, what leaning what more the towards the Oh, I'm sorry. He, tell he, our
0: audience he got, what the
1: sentence was. He got life without parole plus 21 years. So the murder he got life for and then these other charges for the email and also for, um, you know, some of the other stuff with the life insurance payments being transferred the way that they were. They charged him with some other um, charges, fraud, et cetera, um, 21 more years. so Life plus 21, I mean, you can't
0: get higher than that. That's that's (laughs) That's right. I know. What what would the... We have about uh 52, uh 52, so we have about seven or eight minutes left to our show. Okay. Um With regard to, I know it's kind of flying by, isn't it? Um, yeah. I'm very engrossed in what you're saying. Um uh, oh, With you. regard to the uh, a, a lesson here, I mean, there's many lessons, but is there something that particularly rises to the top that that, you know, I mean, there's obvious things, but in doing all the depth of research that you did and with your background and knowing knowing some of these uh, problems that you've experienced personally, what, what would be the biggest lesson um, for readers in reading this book? I, I have two. <laughs> just, okay. I'll try to stick to one,
1: but there's one more that I really <laughs> do need to mention. So let me do the minor one first. The minor one is, when you're doing online dating, you don't know who the other person is. I mean, these women who met Steve online, they thought they were getting something that they certainly were not getting. You know, the the woman who he met on adultfriendfinders.com thought that they were seeing each other monogamously. Uh, I don't know why you would think that if that's how you met the guy in the first place, but it's a sex yeah. hookup site. But um, number one, people are not what... People are not always what they seem. That's my first lesson. But the more major lesson to me and the more serious one is, you know, if if you read my book and you find yourself some of these themes with Carol and Steve and the dynamics of the relationship, if you find yourself feeling like this is resonating with you, please pay attention to this and please try to get out of a relationship like this as soon as you can and don't wait, you know, 25 years. Well, see, Carol... Health right. suffered from this She developed an immune system Condition she was Feeling suicidal I mean it, it just Wore her down to the Point of you know Of this happening and and I I really hope that this book Can save some lives that's My hope
0: Wow well it sounds as if It, it, it certainly can and I think It was this this has got to be a huge A huge achievement what Um Can you tell us uh, contact information with regard to to getting the book? And maybe if you do, have some for people listening on the West Coast, do you have some um, events coming up in the near future uh, that you'd like to tell people about so that they can attend? Oh, that would be nice. I have
1: have one event in San Diego that's happening December 13th at 4 p.m. at the Women's Museum of California in San Diego. Um, I have... I don't have a lot more events coming up because I've actually been doing them the last few weeks. I've had some book signings in um, in Southern California and also in Arizona. I know there are some signed that. copies of, of books still in the Phoenix Barnes & Noble Desert Ridge where I just had a signing there. If anybody wants one, you can call the store and um, they will send one to you. Um, my my website is com. I'm on Facebook and Twitter, and there's a page on Pinterest dedicated to this case. Um, I'm always happy to to hear from readers, and if anybody wants a signed copy, personalized, you know, directly, they can email me um, through my website. Um, and yeah. I, I will be I will be at the there's if anybody's a writer and not just a, a reader but it's interested in writing. I'm going to be at the San Diego State Writers Conference in January doing a couple workshops as well.
0: Oh, that's that's wonderful. Hey, has the book been well received in in uh Arizona? When when you went there, did you get yeah, a good I got um, I had
1: a I had a great signing in Prescott. Um probably one of not if not the best, one of the very best signings I've ever had. It was so great to come into you know, a community bookstore, an independent bookstore. It was packed, adding seats. They, we sold out a books that a bunch of people didn't even get books that came to the signing. And so I just had two boxes of books delivered to my house, which I'm going to sign and personalize and ship back to the bookstore because people oh, um, were so interested. And the reason is because they not only knew either Carol or Steve or both, they also knew those two other victims. Tom and Jackie Hawks who um you know I featured in in another book dead reckoning Oh from your so, other book Oh that's yeah, an that
0: awesome whole screen, community isn't
1: it? Yeah Please that whole hell. community w- was shaken by these right. these two murders were probably it's the nice. biggest ones to hit their town, so uh-huh. it was a pretty intense day that we had that signing. I have to say, it was it was really great Yeah, I great saw that
0: line. It, it was wonderful. Well, Delilah do you have any um, parting uh, questions or comments before we close out our show? Well, I think all the listeners should order a book. <laughs> yeah, you. <laughs>
1: And, Actually, I just want to so say I, one thing. I'm uh, a little concerned about some one thing that's happening online, and that is on the Amazon site. I am seeing some one-star reviews that from people, and I'm kind of thinking they're Steve's family members because they're very oddly worded and very dramatic,
0: you know, melodramatic oh, yeah.
1: with, with the criticism. So this happened to me with Lost Girls. I ended up getting a smear campaign on Amazon from people who had never even read the book but were just trying to personally attack me because they didn't approve of the idea of the book. I really hope that's not happening in this case because I really think it could help a lot of people. And I have gotten rave reviews from people who've actually read it and and liked it and are just, I've never, I mean, seriously, I can't believe how over the top some people have been. I'm really, really excited and feeling very um, rewarding to, to, to have women writing me who have this book resonate with them so much.
0: Well that, that is a that is a tribute to you and this book and your effort and we wanna make sure that the positives definitely outweigh any of the negatives. So thank you so much for being on my show again. It was a pleasure. Please do keep in touch with us. And uh, we're gonna close out this edition of Shattered Lives right now. So thank you very much, Caitlin. Um Thank you so much for having time. me back. Oh, our pleasure. And thank you, Delilah. And uh we'll we'll talk to everyone soon and have a very good weekend everyone. Be safe.
1: Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.